you know, and I'm not, I wouldn't say this if it wasn't true, if I didn't believe it in my heart. Um, you, you use their own reports against them. And, um, it was incredible to watch because the facts don't change. It's just the interpretation of them. It's how they want to spin them. But the reality is, is that um, they couldn't prove causation, which is the major element, probably the only element that you really need to have in there, um, causation for the death. And they could not put that on Michael Brillo. They couldn't, they can't 100% guarantee put it on anybody um, because they didn't have, there's still rounds that they don't know where they went you know That's there's right. the, and they're basing everything on casings where the casings fell and um it was just a it, it was a kangaroo court um it was a kangaroo investigation on their part um they were they had their minds made up that somebody was going to stand trial for this because the politics demanded it city streets and the quiet town boulevards The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation. On a November evening, just before 10.30 p.m., a Cleveland plainclothes police officer working in an assignment in an unmarked unit was patrolling the downtown area of Cleveland, Ohio, when he noticed a group of people around an older model Chevy Malibu, which was just parked outside of a homeless center in the 2100 block of Lakeside. The undercover officer, or plainclothes detective, with experience in narcotic sales, suspected that maybe the people in this car were selling narcotics to people outside the homeless center. And during the course of surveillance, he decided that he was going to affect a car stop. So he followed the vehicle waiting for suspicious activity and subsequently did stop that vehicle. And he did not get out of the car, but he ordered the driver of the car, whose name was Timothy Russell, to turn off his car and put his hands up. At the same time, a female passenger in the car that actually had short hair and appeared to be a male started yelling and screaming. This person's name was Melissa Williams. Mr. Russell didn't comply with the officer's request to start the, to stop the car, but instead drove away. And the plainclothes officers followed him with his emergency lights on didn't activate a siren and lost the vehicle, but never reported it. But at the same time, Russell and Williams sped off. And coincidentally, while driving at 60 miles an hour, which is excessive speed for the downtown area of Cleveland, happened to 
pass by St. Clair Avenue in front of the Justice Center where the headquarters of the Cleveland Police Department are located. And as they drove by their vehicle, which was an older vehicle, must have backfired. But as they drove past the Justice Center, officers were coming in and out of the Justice Center and thought that they had gotten shot at. As a matter of fact, civilians in that area also thought that they had gotten shot at. And so one of the officers who was able to get in his car began pursuing the Malibu and believed and radioed that there were armed people inside the car that were shooting. And so during the pursuit, Officer Michael Brillo and his female partner Moore joined this pursuit and they followed in their vehicle and as they were joined by many other Cleveland Police Department patrol units and unmarked detective units, they fell back from the second position to the number 10 position. During the course of this lengthy pursuit, various officers and supervisors who were following and observing the passenger in the vehicle reported that she appeared to be using a two-handed pistol grip stance like a combat stance and was firing at them. And at one point, the suspect vehicle with Russell and Williams collided with an unmarked unit. As they passed during the course of the pursuit with numerous patrol vehicles and detective vehicles pursuing them, a witness that was at a gas station watched the suspect vehicle pass by and reported that the passenger suspect appeared to be jumping around inside the vehicle and acting as if that person was shooting at police. And again, units were reporting that the passenger in the vehicle was using a two-handed combat grip on what appeared to be a pistol and firing at them. During the pursuit, the suspect vehicle got up to speeds of about 120 miles an hour and was endangering other cars on the roadway the passenger continued to appear to be shooting at officers. And during the course of the vehicle pursuit, they drove into a neighborhood and onto the grounds of the Heritage Middle School property. By this time, the vehicle had extended seven miles through the highways and residential areas of Cleveland, Ohio. As they entered into the school grounds of Heritage Middle School, Officer Diaz and his partner had attempted to block them. And during the course of this, the suspect vehicle came directly at their vehicle. And Officer Diaz quickly exited the vehicle and believing that he saw a passenger about to shoot him, he discharged four rounds at the suspect vehicle and at the same time, the partner not knowing that Officer Diaz has fired reported on the radio, shots fired. 
two officers in patrol car 238 went over to the driveway in an attempt to block the suspect vehicle from going down a roadway through the middle school property. Officer Brelo and his partner went to the right side of the 238 vehicle. And they observed at that time the suspect vehicle ram the 238 car. And at that point, the vehicle careened off the 238 unit and started heading directly towards Officer Brelo and Officer Moore. In fear of their lives and both officers reporting that it appeared to, that one or both of the occupants in the suspect vehicle were about to shoot them, they discharged their weapons directly through the front windshield of their own patrol unit. Officer Brelo firing 17 rounds from his Glock and Officer Moore firing approximately 12 rounds from her weapon. Officer Brelo exited the vehicle and ran to a cover position at the rear of the 238 unit when Officer Moore got out of the right front passenger side over the hood. Officer Brelo reloaded his magazine and fired another 17 rounds while Officer Moore discharged another nine rounds. Officer Brelo then moved from a position behind the car to up on top of the trunk of the car and then began firing upon the suspect vehicle over the light bar. Numerous other officers who had converged on the scene began shooting at the suspect vehicle, all officers stating that it appeared that the suspect were shooting back at them. And as officers were going to ground and bullets were literally whizzing by everyone and one of the officers actually getting struck in a trauma plate, all of the officers believed that the suspects were firing upon them when in fact they had surrounded the suspect vehicle and bullets that they were firing were penetrating through the vehicle and towards other officers. Officers Saludo and Rinkus ran towards the rear of the suspect vehicle, saw what appeared to be the suspects firing and seeing bullets and hearing bullets whizzing by, they discharged their weapons through the rear window of the suspect vehicle. Officer Salupo firing two rounds towards suspect Russell and his partner firing 13 rounds through the rear window. However, both of those officers were in direct crossfire of Officer Brelo. Detective O'Donnell believed that the suspects were firing discharged 12 rounds at Russell as he saw him moving about the vehicle and fired those rounds also in Williams' direction through the right front passenger window. All in all, numerous rounds were being fired. Officer Brelo on top of the Unit 238 vehicle jumped at one point from the 238 car onto the front hood of the Malibu and discharged numerous rounds from his third magazine 
directly into the front compartment of the vehicle, striking both suspects. All in all, in 17 and a half seconds, 138 rounds were fired in this amazing gunfight. However, at the conclusion of the inspection of the crime scene, no weapon was recovered from the suspect vehicle. And to make a long story short, Officer Brillo was indicted by the county prosecutor and the trial of Officer Brillo for two counts of homicide began, even though in total there were 13 firing officers. With me today, Steve Loomis, former president of the Cleveland Patrol Officers Association, and he joins me today to unpack the case and the mystery of the Officer Brillo homicide investigation. Welcome to the program, Steve. Thank you, Ron. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, Steve, talk to us today about your involvement of the case and just exactly how our forensic death investigations team got involved in this amazing officer-involved shooting. Well, uh, I, I became the president um, after this event, and so I inherited it. And what we ended up finding out was that, the, um, of course, the media, the public outcry over 137 rounds um, with no context as to how or why those rounds were fired, um, the false narrative, um, these agenda-driven organizations and groups and politicians uh, all added fuel to the fire of this and made it very, very difficult for um, anybody to honestly investigate this as far as police uh, departments. Uh, four different agencies investigated it, federal, state, and local. Um, but um, that wasn't good enough for the uh, for the prosecutor in this case, who's an elected official. It wasn't good enough for uh, the Black Lives Matter folks. It wasn't good enough for uh, the media. You know, they were just in a frenzy over this. And, and the reality is, is that uh, we're responsible for the actions. Uh, we're responsible for our actions based on what we know at the time of the incident. And you just laid it out there, you know, uh, a, a gun, a gunshot at a police department, a chase ensued, an authorized chase ensued. And ultimately, uh, the suspects, the decedents in this case, had 22 minutes to uh, during that pursuit to decide to pull over, <laughs> to stop. Right. And instead, they kept going um, through forensics investigations we we learned that they were literally smoking crack cocaine um, during the pursuit and uh, there was enough of it in their system where the uh, forensics uh, even even the even the county forensics uh, 
coroner said that there was cocaine, that they had ingested cocaine uh, within 10 minutes of their death. Um, so, you know, it was very, very important to us to get this right. And, and that's why we, um, we threw everything that we had at it. You know, it was wrong. that It was politically motivated indictment. Um, as you said, there was 13 people that, that shot. Um, Officer Brillo's partner, uh, Cindy Moore, shot just about the same time. He didn't shoot as many, or she didn't shoot as many rounds, but she shot uh, in the same manner and for the same reasons. And 13 officers that were involved in this ranged from a rookie on probation all the way to a, a 28-year veteran. You know, you know what was amazing for me is it seemed to me, uh, as the lead forensic investigator of the forensic death investigations team, that the prosecutors decided to indict Officer Brillo because he had fired the most amount of rounds, and and uh, and had moved from the two thirty eight unit over to the front of the uh, suspects' uh, hood of their vehicle. And which to them yes. was extremely bizarre. By the way, Officer Brillo reported when he was interviewed by investigators that he didn't remember much of anything from the time that he had fired his, um, you know, his uh, his second magazine and had uh, climbed onto the the trunk of the 238 car to the mm-hmm. time he was at the front window of the suspect vehicle. And I think yeah. that they found that so bizarre that he was the guy that they went after and instead of the other 12 officers that had also fired their weapons. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, he's a military veteran and, and in the military you're trained to uh, take high cover, take high ground. You know, that's, that's a position of advantage in the military. Now to police officers, it, it, and it was bizarre to us as well. And I'm not saying that in a negative way, but it, it's either he was absolutely terrified of what was going on or he was absolutely heroic. Stop shooting at my friends because every police officer on that scene um, believed that they were being shot at. They knew that they were shot at downtown. Um, there was all kinds of radio traffic. She's, it looks like she's reloading or he's reloading. They thought it was a, uh, Melissa was a, a gentleman. Um, it looks like he's reloading. And um, we have civilians saying that she was leaning over the seat, pointing what appeared to be a gun to, you know, towards the officers that were in pursuit um, in hindsight. You know, so there was a lot going on there. And at the end of the day, the, the, the fact that they had that much time, you know, 20 miles, 22 minutes, this chase went on. And, uh, and it was an authorized chase. So somebody had to pay for it. The, the, the politics in motion. So we have to do something about this. You know, right. uh, the state attorney general um, did an investigation. And his conclusions were that there was plenty of problems in this, but they were systemic problems from the top. There were problems in policy, problems in pursuit policy, problems in uh, our communications policies. We had four different uh, radio channels working, officers from four different districts involved in this thing. 
Um, there was no one person that seemed to be in charge of it. So those are all command and control problems. Those aren't the zone cart, the, right. you know, the, the guys out in the street problems. We're doing what we're supposed to be doing. And, and um, you know, what I, wanted to, what I wanted to interject here uh, before we take our first break is that officers are trained in their calculus of force to consider the totality of circumstances. And so when we come back, I'd like to discuss a little bit about those totality of circumstances that Officer Brillo and the other 12 officers who fired uh, experienced and tie in the forensic experts and their analysis of evidence to really discuss what was in the officer's mind the totality of the experience. When we come back on a thread of evidence on America Out Loud. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world to unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. It's AmericaOutloud.com, where the conversation never ends. With 24-7 streaming on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field, and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police at Amazon.com. Talking about, Steve, talking about this totality of uh experience right so the totality of experience mm -hmm. the totality of circumstances as you remember that we don't take a look at things 2020 hindsight uh, when forensic investigators or detectives uh, or even the trier of fact which would be a judge or a jury reviews what happens post incident we have to stand in the shoes of officer Brillo uh, and all the other officers and consider their experiences at the time, whether or not those experiences were actually taking place. In other words, whether factually uh, the suspects were shooting at them or not, we have to consider what these officers are saying. So, Steve, why don't you and I talk about uh, the forensic evidence and the forensic investigators and our analysis and how, how uh, when you got into this, what you thought about this investigation and, and how our forensic people were handling this? Um, well, absolutely necessary to have forensic experts uh, on this case and, and probably any police-involved shooting um, from this point on in our history, at least right now, because of the climate, um, because of the... Um, you know, the anti-police, I just don't understand where we are in this nation right now where the police are the bad guys uh, all the time, where you, you can point a gun at us, and when we shoot you, everybody's surprised, and everybody's, you know, 
criticizing us for that. Exactly. Um, so we're in, a, we're in a bad place right now, and as far as law enforcement goes, um, so we have to have all of our ducks in a row when we get involved in these police-involved uh, shootings. And uh, that absolutely requires the presence of uh, professionals, um, professionals in lighting, professionals in communication, uh, professionals in, in ballistics, um, you name it, uh, we need them. You know, we need them involved in these cases and we need them involved very, very early in the case. Um, as the president of the police union, what that allowed me to do, for example, when, um, when you guys found out that there was, or the county coroner and our coroner, you know, our forensics coroner, um, found out and determined that the, and proved beyond doubt that there was primer residue inside that car and on Melissa Williams, um, that's an, that's a clear indication that there was a weapon fired in that car. Now the false narrative that was going around out there was, Oh, they're unarmed. Um, they didn't have a gun in the car. Well, that's not the case. You know, they did through forensics. We were able to prove that they absolutely had a gun in that car and that that gun was fired. There was primer residue in the headboard on the dashboard on Melissa Williams. And, um, as you know, that, that primer residue is different from gunpowder residue and it, and it only travels between a foot to two feet away from the gun. That's exactly Um, right. And you know, there's just no, it's not gunpowder that's coming in from outside or anything like that. And and that was critical. It was critical for the, the public relations aspect of it because, now I'm confident in being able to go out as the union president and say, Hey, listen, these folks had 22 minutes, 20 miles to pull that car over. They made some bad decisions. Um, and at the end of the day, you're saying that there was no gun and they were unarmed. Well, they weren't unarmed. There's not one police officer up there that said that they shot at them because they pointed a gun at them in that parking lot at the end of this case they drove at those officers and you know so they were armed with the vehicle exactly i mean you know that's the other thing that people have to remember they're driving about a 3500 pound vehicle that is absolutely a deadly weapon and they had uh run into a unmarked unit uh detective car uh during the course of the pursuit uh they had uh when they hit that uh island when they got into the middle school property, their vehicle had spun around and struck another vehicle. Then they came directly at Officer Diaz and his partner. And at the time yeah. they came at Diaz and his partner, uh, Diaz, uh, you know, testified that hey, it, it looked to me like like the uh, the, the the passenger in the car, uh, who was uh, who was uh, Williams, uh, was was firing a gun, right? Yeah. And you know, there was a, a tremendous amount of confusion, uh, both by the officers, you know, by, well, all by the officers, you know, because mm-hmm. of all the different officers that were involved. Steve, how many how many officers in total and vehicles do you recall were involved in this pursuit? We had, well, uh, <laughs> here's the false narrative. You know, they, they're saying, they're claiming 65 police cars were involved in this pursuit. But the reality is, is that there was clearly seven that were intimately involved in the pursuit. They were saying, for example, the fourth district police cars, 
there was seven of them that simply, and that's the south side of the city. And I, I can't draw you a map, but it's a long way. They never got within eight miles of that pursuit. But because they turned around and started headed towards the border, where where if the pursuit came into their district, that's where they they were headed, which was responsible. That's that's good police work. They were considered to be involved in that pursuit. So they're, they're one of the 65. We had uh, 11 police cars from other jurisdictions, the state troopers, the transit police, the college police um, that were involved in this thing. We had no way to communicate with those those agencies. Bratnaw, we had no way to communicate with those agencies um, to, to call them off or to call them on or to do anything. They just, they saw what was going on and they came to help. And that's what, that's what cops do, you know? So, um, officers in all in all, I had 67 police officers that went up on charges. Now this is how ridiculous this is. Um, the passenger in a police car got put up on charges for going too fast in a high speed authorized pursuit. Um, again, I'll say that again, just so we're clear. The passenger in that police car got put up on charges and got days off for going too fast in a high-speed authorized pursuit. Um, those are the types of, um, you know, that's the kangaroo court that we were in as far as the the politics and the chief and, uh, you know, the safety director and the mayor, who, by the way, was running for election, re-election. Well, you know, you know it, it was real clear to me that uh, – all the politics that were involved were to assuage uh, the public. Okay, we had uh, we had uh, two uh, black suspects uh, that were shot and killed uh, during the course of a uh, legitimate law enforcement uh, enforcement action. Uh, but because there was no gun at that point, you know, found at the crime scene, all of a sudden the narrative was, "Hey, these officers are shooting unarmed." people and that's how as yeah. i recall black lives matter jumped into this and uh, yeah. you know a host of other uh, organizations and uh, of course the mainstream media uh, uh picked up those false narratives and even forwarded them more to to further emotionally engage the people when the the forensic evidence as we're going to be talking about was totally uh, contradictory to that and it was interesting to note that uh, that your people uh, did recover a uh, banged up firearm uh, later on uh, during the pursuit route. Can you talk about that just a little bit? Yeah, we get a call from uh, the Chagrin Falls Police Department. Um, they had arrested a male that had a nine millimeter that was all chewed up, had road rash on it. Um, he wasn't saying anything, but his girlfriend said, oh, he found that on Euclid Avenue which was right along the, um, the path of, of this pursuit. And it was in the exact same time frame. So, um, of course this was weeks later and we weren't able to recover any type of DNA that would link the gun to the car, to the car. But, you know, it's, uh, it's a remarkable coincidence, you know? Well, and yeah. as I said before, Ron, the, the forensics evidence that you guys uncovered um, clearly showed that there was a gun that was fired inside that car. Now they had right. 22 
uh, minutes and 20 miles worth of pursuit to, to get that gun out of that car. Right. And, uh, you know, that is a, that's the proverbial needle in a haystack. And then with <laughs> this investigation, this command staff is so inept. They didn't send people out to look on the right. uh, pursuit route. We right. knew what the pursuit route was because we have the GPSs in the car. They didn't send them out to look um, for a weapon until three days after the event. Right. And you know, you know, so that, that that's nuts because what we had, uh, you know, everything taken into its totality, we had people that were suspected of being uh, drug sales suspects. Okay, that's why they were initially surveilled yep. and followed. Uh, the next thing is, is that, as we all know, any of us that have worked dope, uh, we know that uh, that drug dealers, more likely than not, carry guns uh, to protect their dope and because they're making a lot, of, you know, they have a lot of money that they're carrying on them and they want to protect themselves. Yeah. And so classically, during any type of officer-involved shooting investigation, we do what's referred to as a neighborhood canvas. Well, that's not only for, for witnesses, but that's for physical evidence, especially during a pursuit. We're looking for a couple of things. Number one, we're looking for dope. Did they toss narcotics out of the vehicle so they wouldn't be arrested with it? And number two, if they're actually shooting at the police, they probably want to get rid of that gun evidence as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, again, the, fact that the facts are the facts. And um, without forensics experts um, to, to investigate those things and to make those determinations, um, we would have had a much, uh, a, a much rougher road. Um, Grillo was indicted for voluntary manslaughter, two counts of it. Um, and in the closing arguments from the prosecutor's office, and keep in mind, they had 13 county prosecutors working on this case. They spent more money prosecuting this this particular case than in any case, any other case in the history of that office. Well, you know, it's interesting and, uh, because when I was on the stand, I had four of them trying to gang up on me. <laughs> and I yeah, looked at that yeah. and I said, where are all these prosecutors coming from? <laughs> it's ridiculous. I was in the courtroom and, and I'm taking pictures of them. And boy, they didn't like that. You know? Oh, no. And Cause, actually, cause, I was going to say, you know, in all the years I've been doing this, I've, uh, and, and you know, as you know, and as I currently do, and even even for the city of Cleveland, uh, I, I'm their uh, I'm their forensic expert, right? I'm their law enforcement yes. expert, right? And, uh, yes. And so I, I've never had a county prosecutor, a state prosecutor, or anybody for that matter, Ever and I don't know if you were in a courtroom then, but I actually had him rush the rush the witness stand <laughs> to try to intimidate me, and I just thought that was yeah. amazing. That's how far they were well, willing to go. Listen, when you don't have the facts, we we uh, we had a great strategy. We were we were playing that we were going to have a jury trial. We had three very very good Pat D'Angelo. Um, we had. Uh, Shaughnessy, we had three outstanding, Fernando Mack. Yeah, they're all uh, We had an outstanding brilliant. legal team. I mean, brilliant, brilliant guys. And, um, you know, and, and I would go on to the plane dealer and, you know, everywhere else and says, this county prosecutor is a goldfish swimming around in a piranha bowl <laughs> as far as in that being in that courtroom. Um, but 
at the end of the day, we right up until the very right up until the very time that we had to file, um, we were going to do a jury trial. So this prosecutor was he that's that's right in his wheelhouse, right? Right. He wants to put pictures. And in fact, for the whole trial, he had these mannequins with these rods going through them, and he oh, had the I clothes remember. of the decedent sitting up there, and he had big, huge pictures. I mean, more money uh, thrown at this case by the prosecutor's office than in the history. Um, and they, he was so he was pre- preparing himself for a visual. Um, he wanted to strike at the hearts of common folks that usually sit on a jury. Well, at the last minute, um, our legal team said, we want a bench trial. And uh, boy, he filed a brief. Now that's, that's our legal right with the state constitution, with the United States constitution. Um, we have a statutory right to request a, a bench trial, a trial by judge. And boy, this prosecutor lost his mind. Tim McGinty, um, oh, he filed him. a brief. Yeah, he filed a brief against it. And his brief, not only did he file one brief, but he filed two because the the, the uh, he he filed a motion against it and said the the African American people of Cleveland and East Cleveland deserve to be able to sit in judgment on this case. Right. That was I'll never forget. I, I could not believe that a prosecuting attorney was filing a motion against something that's constitutionally and statutorily guaranteed to us. Right. And when the judge denied that, he filed a second motion um, saying basically the same thing. You know, so that just shows you, or at least it shows me, that this was not about the facts. It was not about the incident itself. It was about the politics. It was about the optics. Of this, you know, Michael Brillo getting up on the hood of the car. He didn't do anything any differently than anybody else there, other than he shot more rounds and he shot him from uh, an elevated position, you know. And the county prosecutor in his closing arguments said as much, and which I couldn't believe. He says if Michael Brillo had kept his boots on the ground and fired the same amount of rounds, we wouldn't be here. And, you right know, that's so, that's so, so interesting uh, because I thought that was a damaging argument, not against Michael and our team, but against their own team. Because oh all goodness. we had to prove, well, there was a few things we had to prove, okay? But all we had to prove is a couple of things, that everything that Michael Brelo did at the time he did it was based on a reasonable belief that he and other officers were in, in imminent jeopardy of serious bodily harm or death. Yes, sir. And be able to take our forensic evidence as, uh, as documented and as testified to by our forensic ev- uh, experts and be able to convince that judge that even though what a layperson and even some police officers might think would have been bizarre for Officer Brelo to do in turning around and looking at it a different way, everything that Michael did at that time 
was objectively reasonable. And we'll get more into that, Steve, when we come back on a thread of evidence on America Out Loud. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Tired of watching the same old, same old sporting events? Well, kick it up a notch and get ready, America, for something you've never seen before. It's the new generation of Western superstars. Shorty Gorham's American freestyle bullfighting. Who will win? The acrobatic, tough-as-nails Western superstar or the meanest half-ton fighting bulls on earth? This is one of the most extreme sports you'll ever see in an arena. This is hand-to-horn combat on a level playing field. Go to shortygoramafb.com or find them on Facebook. It's bullfighting time. I'm back with Steve Loomis from the Cleveland Police Department. And uh, Steve, let's talk specifically about our forensic death investigations team and the team that the prosecutors brought in and this fight for the recovery, analysis, and explanation of evidence. Let's go back to going out to that crime scene and reconstructing Mm -hmm. it and what your thoughts were about what our team members did to reconstruct uh, what occurred that night. Yeah, the um, part of the prosecution's argument was they couldn't have been moving. Our guys were all saying we saw them moving in the car and the prosecutor saying they couldn't be moving. They had already been shot, fatally wounded. They couldn't have been moving. So there's a reason why our guys said they're moving in the car. And it was the, um, uh, your, your gentleman's name escapes me, but uh, oh, Greg there was lighting. Yeah. Greg yes. Stutchman. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about That's that. That's our video audiologist. Yes, sir. And he did a fantastic job. He decided, um, and, and probably you were, I'm sure you were involved in that decision, um, to go back out and reconstruct. So, um, I procured a, a few police cars, um, with the, with the light bars and, and the works. And we positioned real cars with a real person. I think my son was actually in the driver's seat, um, out there. And we videotaped the effects that the strobe lights have on somebody that's sitting in that car, just sitting still in that car. Um, and the, the, the effect was remarkable because in the video, um, optically in person, it looked like my son Tyler was was moving around in that car because of the different angles of the different strobe lights. And that's, now that's something that that's important. That, that's absolutely important because it, it it gives credence to what the officers are saying. Hey, I was I kept shooting because they were moving. 
they were still moving in there. You know, they were still a threat. And, um, you know, of course, oh, no. Go ahead. And no, I was going to say, Steve, just so that uh, the members of our audience understand what happens is that we juxtaposition uh, our patrol units with the strobe lights. So these are not the old type of rotator lights. These are strobe. They're LED strobe lights. They're extremely Very bright. bright. And when they're yeah. in opposition to each other, they change the angle of light. Okay, so the prism of light and the angle of light, if you've got three or four patrol cars, they've all got their strobes on, but they're not all going on at the same time. So picture, yeah. just picture this, picture the suspect vehicle being in the middle and a, and a patrol car behind it, a patrol car in front of it, a patrol car on the side and on both sides, but they're all flashing strobes at different times from different directions. Yeah. And if a person is sitting still inside the suspect vehicle, it absolutely, and it's incredible to watch it, it absolutely makes it look like that person is moving around. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's an optical illusion for sure. Well, you know, you go into these dance clubs with all the different lights and, you know, the the lay the average lay person has been in one of these clubs before they they know that you put your hand in front of your face with all these different lights it looks like it's going in slow motion so um, but those that was something that that we as a police officer as a detective twenty five years experience that's something that I would not have thought to look at and uh, um, if not for the forensics experts that came in and said hey you know this is this is optics you know we can we can explain why the police officers to a person said that they were still moving around in that car when they were shooting and that's yeah, why they continued to fire exactly and you know steve i really love your analogy about being on the like the disco floor with the different lights bouncing off because that's exactly what it looks like and you know uh, Greg did a wonderful job, too, because Great the other job. side used about four or five other forensic experts in, in the field of video audiology. And Greg, uh, in his uh, recovery of evidence from a dash cam audio of actually one of the college officers, was able to conclusively uh, pin down and, and with real demonstrative evidence that three shots were fired even after Officer Michael Brillo had stopped shooting. And what that allowed yeah. me to do was testify that another officer, using the reasonable officer doctrine, another officer believed that they were still uh, at risk of, uh, of being shot and killed by the suspects in that vehicle. And then, of course, we used our uh, ballistic scientist, Lance Martini, who uh, did a wonderful job. I think you had spoken uh, about the mm -hmm. other side, came in with those mannequins with the rods through the body. And Lance mm -hmm. was able to work with the forensic pathologist on our team and even using their own forensic pathologist autopsy reports uh, to demonstrate that Michael Brillo, more likely than not, did not uh, apply the kill shots, or in other words, the one that instantly killed uh, suspects Williams and Russell. And it was other mm -hmm. officers that had done that. Yeah, ultimately, I think that's probably the, the biggest factor in him getting acquitted was that 
Um, it, and it was remarkable the the length that you guys went to, and, and you know, and I'm not, I wouldn't say this if it wasn't true, if I didn't believe it in my heart. Um, you you used their own reports against them, and um, it was incredible to watch because the facts don't change. It's just the interpretation of them. It's how they want to spin them. But the reality is, is that um, they couldn't prove causation, which is the major element, probably the only element that you really need to have in there, um, uh, causation for the death. And they could not put that on Michael Brillo. They couldn't, they can't 100% guarantee put it on anybody um, because they didn't have, there's still rounds that they don't know where they went, you know, there's the, and they're basing everything on casings where the casings fell. And, um, it was just a, it it was a kangaroo court. Um, it was a kangaroo investigation on their part. Um, they were, they had their minds made up that somebody was going to stand trial for this because the politics demanded it. And, uh, at the end of the day, you know, we're out of kangaroo court and we're sitting in front of a thoughtful judge who's applying fact to law. And you know, that and, is, and, uh, that, that's so important to do. There's a, there's a couple of things that, that in my mind as a person that gave a significant amount of testimony in this case, uh, that I think uh, was the thing that allowed us to prevail. First of all, the expertise of the experts, okay? Yes. Uh, the ones from our forensic death investigation team versus the prosecutors. And what I found remarkable, uh, you know, applied science is applied science, right? But you have mm-hmm. to have the experience on what the evidence really means versus what you think it means, right? Because at the end, it's an objective standard of proof, right? And, you know, you mentioned the casings, and their experts totally misunderstood uh, what the significance of the location of casings meant, okay? Uh, Because, don't forget, those casings bounce all around. There was asphalt. It didn't necessarily mean that an officer was at that particular location at that point. And then also, remember, we had emergency vehicles. We had all sorts of things that come in and destroy uh, the crime scene. And then, you know, the final thing is really the police practices experts that came in to take all that raw data and use that uh, to to talk about how officers are trained and and what really happened. Sort of put a bow on it, mm-hmm. so to speak. And, uh, yeah, they did a they did a great job. And then I'll tell you something else too. The where you guys really um, played a huge part was in advising the attorneys. Now these guys aren't forensics guys; they're attorneys. But um, you really had them educated on. The, the the details of these forensics, these different various forensics investigations where they could go and they really manhandled um, the uh, witnesses for the, or the experts for the uh, prosecution. They manhandled the um, prosecutors in, in, in their cross-examinations of witnesses that came and testified. Um, so that's that's as important as your own direct testimony is is having having the attorneys aware of what it is you know that's being said and and how it's being said because if somebody's not pushing back 
on what these, uh, you know, quacks, for lack of a better word, that the prosecutor uh, presented, um, if somebody's not pushing back on that, then then the judge has no choice but to, to look at that and, and, and believe that it's gospel, you know, right. and it, and it just wasn't, they, they could not make a move or make a statement to suggest anything inappropriate without our forensics team and our attorneys um, just absolutely manhandling them and explaining away whatever point they were trying to make. And, you know, and, that was absolutely key. Well, I think that's really important because I think good experts also discuss the strengths and weaknesses of a case because we're very objective. Sure. Uh, you know, I like to think our team, you know, I call them the untouchables. There's no amount of money that will get us to change our opinions. Uh, we don't make any political opinions. Uh, we try to have forensic solutions and not speculation. They never do speculate. And I think in the no. end, and what was the name of that judge, uh, Steve? Um, John O'Donnell. Thank you. Uh, you know, I have to write that name down because, yeah. you know, I also want to applaud that judge because that was a very difficult decision uh, for the judge to make where he just ignored all the political intrigue, all the false narratives, and made a right and just and extremely yeah. informed decision to well, it was a, to quit officer. Yeah, Pitt. it was – and, and if you remember, it was a two-hour. He 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 gave his verdict over a two-hour period of time, and he explained in great detail that was provided by us for the most part, and and uh, in great detail as to why, you know, why he's making the decisions that he's making here. And if you remember, there was not a legal mind in the, in the state or in the country for that matter, that, that said anything in opposition to, um, judge O'Donnell's decision, right. you know, he covered every single aspect and there was not a legal argument to make by anybody, the prosecutor, uh, nobody, right. um, you know, so it, of course it didn't sit well with the agenda driven organizations and it didn't sit well with the politicians and, and ultimately, you know, we had 13 police officers that were um, involved in this. And when push came to shove, the mayor fired six of them. Um, the union, I lost my mind over that. And we got heavily involved in it. And we ended up getting five of their, five of the six jobs back. Um, we ultimately did not get Michael Brillo's job back. Um, but it, it just shows you, you, you know, if you're going to fire six of them, then why not fire off 13 of right. them? If that's how you feel, then what'd you do? Pick a name out of a hat, you know, yeah. until you got to the point where you thought the, the, the ministers and the groups and the, the politics, the optics were going to be okay. Yeah. I fired half of them and that damn Loomis and that damn union got their jobs back for them. Well, you, you know, know. Uh, unfortunately, it's time for us to conclude our discussion today, but you're yes, absolutely sir. right. Uh, you know, the politics reared, you know, its ugly head at the end, but I think we were all so uh, relieved and grateful that Judge O'Donnell did the right thing and acquitted Michael Brelow. Yeah, and, and by the way, that, that, that cost, he ran for uh, um, Supreme Court Justice in Ohio. 
and his his opponent brought that verdict out and and ran it against him. Well, you know, so I uh, very likely that because he didn't lose by a huge margin, so um, very likely now a Supreme Court justice. I want a guy in there that's going to look right. look at the facts and apply them to law. That's well, all you can ask of our judges. And he has, and he did he an outstanding job. He has my respect. Absolutely. Hey, Steve, I want to thank you for uh, stopping by today and having a uh, very uh, informative discussion about what uh, I will uh, admit to our audience uh, was the the biggest case of my career as far as complexity uh, and being able to utilize our death investigations team. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist, and Detective Steve Loomis on a thread of evidence on America Out Loud.